Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for featured guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. So today on the Group Dynamics Dispatch, we are very excited to have on Dr. Jason Seidel. Dr. Jason Seidel is the director of the Colorado Center for Clinical Excellence, a multi-provider practice in Denver and Greenwood Village devoted to feedback-informed therapy and outcomes research. Among clients and colleagues, Jason is known for his open heart, brutal honesty, and quick sense of humor. He specializes in the emotional integration of intolerable feelings and healing the impact of extreme experiences. Jason and the other therapists at the Colorado Center offer group therapy for adults and adolescents, and Jason has been a recent Institute presenter at the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Annual Conference. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks, Angelo. It's wonderful to have you on. Well, it's good to be here. So the first question that I typically like to ask our guests is to tell us a little bit about their journey getting into the mental health field and into groups in particular. Sure. So... I think the journey started when I was about 12 years old with me begging my parents to take me to a therapist. I knew something about what therapy was because uh, my sister had been in the system for you know, a number of years because of a lot of difficulties she was having. And so I remember a lot of waiting rooms and things like that. And, you know, around the time, you know, that uh, about 11 or 12, I had had enough <laughs> with my family. And I was like, you've got to take me to see somebody. So they take me to one of the, the best people in the DC area, which is where we live. And because this was, you know, the late seventies and everyone had insurance and insurance could pay for all sorts of therapy. It was, it was a wonderful time to, to, to be able to go see a therapist. And so they took me to this, you know, very well-known child psychiatrist. And I actually went for group therapy uh, and also some individual sessions. And I remember sitting in this guy's office thinking, this guy is a complete jerk. It was horrible. And, you know, he was smug. And he was all the things that people actually hate about therapists. You know, he, he sort of knew all the answers. He just nodded a lot. He didn't seem genuinely interested in me. And I was a very distraught, angry troubled kid and I knew I needed the help and I remember just thinking I could do better than this jackass and you know I, I just enough narcissism to think you know wait a minute you know th there's got to be someone out there and 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 I, I somehow knew this so so that was probably the first thought of, of really relating for my own personal selfish reasons to this need for for good therapy 
And then I had a, a great experience with a, with a psychology teacher in high school who really kind of relit the fire. And also it happened to finally, after two uh, useless years with this guy, wound up seeing a, a fantastic therapist uh, in, in high school who was the opposite model, right? He was like, oh, this is what it's about. And, you know, very empathic and fun and gave me a lot of freedom to be who I was. And so I felt very accepted. And this was the stuff. I mean, this, this, that was actually helpful. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, as part of how I survived uh, and wound up as a therapist and not dead or in jail. And so it was, it was you know, I, I really, on, on a personal level, got the power of, of therapy for turning someone's life around. And then after that, it was, you know, psychology major in college and doing my training and, and then hoping I was going to be good at it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, a, it's such a fun story, Jason, because it really highlights how the importance of um, feeling welcomed by the therapist and also the therapist inviting themselves into the process without having to be so rigid. Yeah. And especially... Uh, as I found out later in my failed attempt to be you know, an adolescent psychotherapist, it's a really unique skill set um, and one that I did not have as it turned out. And, but yeah, he really did have this fantastic capacity just to be present in the way that a teenager really needed that. Mm-hmm. Present and playful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also so, uh, it's wonderful to hear that group got to be a part of your experience from the very beginning. Yes, actually with both therapists, because I was in group for the, uh, for the second therapist as well. I mean, in D.C., group is definitely a major phenomenon, and, and you know, everyone's in some sort of you know, group therapy. It's, it's, it's very prominent in the culture there. That's excellent, just so integrated into how things are done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what were your experiences like in group early on? Well, I, I, you know, certainly in the first case, I felt like there was no you know, there's no real connection or bond with the kids and, you know, with, the, with that first therapist. And it was just sort of reenacting the sort of the loneliness I think we all felt because it never really gelled. It never was really that safe. We didn't know what really what to do. You know, we were all kids. And so without that leadership, it just sort of foundered. But because we were kids, you know, we were just going to stay. And it was, you know, if we were adults, we probably would have bailed out. But the second group uh, was really good because the, the kids were very different. We were all very different in our, in our um, it was very much like the, um, the, what was that movie? Breakfast Club, where you've yes. got like the jock and the nerd and the geek and the, you know, and, and the stoner and the, and that sort of, and so that was sort of what the group was like. And again, it was a, it was a wonderful way to experience that we can all be real and find a way to connect and transcend the superficial differences um, and support each other through some really difficult times and some heroic moments that we each might have experienced and that sort of thing. Wow, what an incredible experience to have as a teenager. I'm just thinking about my own experiences as a teenager and thinking about how incredible it would have been to have had a context where um, I got to connect with people outside of those kind of social roles, letting them go and actually seeing the human underneath. Yeah. When when it's such a stage in life where the role can just feel like everything. Yes. And the funny thing is, you know, you know, as a teenager, I didn't, you know, what you just said is so perfect. And, and, and I agree with it completely. But as a teenager, you know, you have no concept of that. You know, you just know you're going to group and it's cool and you are appreciating appreciating it on some level. But you don't, you don't have I didn't have a sense of the import, you know, and, and the profundity of it to, to have that space outside of that narrow role I was in socially. But it certainly had an impact on me, for sure. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And then from there, you uh, started studying uh, psychology clinically? 
Yeah, so you know, I went through the typical um, process of being a psych major in college and wondering how, what does this have to do with therapy? Because it was all about the science and you know the the brain and cognition and behavior and experimentation and you know that sort of thing. So I was wondering when when do I get to the clinical part, which is uh, you know very common experience in, in the undergrad. And then I was lucky enough to have a couple of really cool clinical experiences along the way, which the, the, the first was that, that one of the psychology professors required some sort of field placement for the undergrads. And so the psychology department at, at my college, at Reed College in Portland, partnered with the crisis hotline. And so I was able to do two years of interning or field placement at the Portland Metro Crisis Line uh, on the graveyard shift, which is where a lot of the psychological crisis, uh, trauma, suicide, uh, homicide kinds of calls come through. So I, you know, at a pretty young age, I got to deal with some pretty frightening, painful, you know, very difficult kinds of problems over the phone. And so that was one experience. And then the other one was that that Reed College was known in the day. I, I think it's less known for this now, but you know, it was, a, it was a very tough liberal arts college that had a very, very extreme spring festival full of drugs and, and dancing and, um, and that sort of thing. And uh, this was in, in the era of Nancy Reagan and Just Say No, and, and federal funding was being pulled from colleges unless they had a really clear, explicit drug policy. And so up until that point, the college had this kind of loose framework around if people were overdoing it on something like LSD, students would go to the infirmary and they would get help from the nurses or the doctor on call or whatever. And, and so this was like a safe place that students could go to sort of calm down and, and come off a bad trip or something like that. And, and so during this just say no phase, they had to stop doing that. They weren't allowed to do that. They would have to call the police. So the students took it upon themselves to start an organization called Karma Patrol. And we went around in these bands of two people, these pairs with walkie-talkies and a, you know, basic training and taking vital signs and stuff like that. And we basically went around helping people calm down when they're on bad trips. So that was actually a really cool clinical experience of people freaking out in some sort of psychotic episode or being incredibly anxious, doing too many drugs or whatever, and then really helping them down over the period of a couple of hours. So that was, that was my early training. Well, that sounds like incredible training. I mean, just for you guys to really take it upon yourselves in order to find a much more skillful, compassionate way of relating to people that are in kind of extreme states, that's really inspiring. And it, and it, yeah, and it also, uh, it was a good teaching moment for me about how important context is for the healing because, you know, the last thing these students would want to do is go to a hospital or, or an ER if they didn't have to because it would be even more terrifying based on what these kids were on. And so just being in a, in a calm environment with their fellow students, you know, it was, it was, you know, we could see how much that was part of what was calming. Um, you know, when people can come into a session with a therapist and they're not being looked down on from this sort of clinically detached, you know, overly professional kind of stance, uh, it can feel much more soothing and safe to open up. So that was, that was kind of cool to, to learn about that. Yeah. Just just the way you guys immediately establish safety just as really almost being another a peer. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and something else I'm struck by is that um, you were having such phenomenal real world experience to kind of offset what could be very cerebral or dry or research-based kind of learning in the college. 
yeah, that was really helpful to keep me interested because I was wondering like, okay, when do I actually get to find out how this stuff really works and whether I'd want to do it or any good at it, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and it, come, it makes something come to mind, which I actually would love to come back to or to kind of keep as a thread, which I, I think people tend to gratify, especially in this field, towards either being a clinician or being a researcher. Mm-hmm. They're kind of two different skill sets in a sense. But you have really found a way to blend those two in a, in a way that's very, very potent. And um, I'd be really curious to hear any thoughts that you have, not that we have to go into this right now, but at, at some point to really talk, kind of talk about that those can be very different skill sets or different ways of thinking and relating to clients and how um, a person, how a clinician kind of manages those, those two different uh, specialties in a sense. Yeah, that's that. That is an important thing to to get a handle on, I think, because you know, as much as the research can inform what we're doing, it can also be used as a kind of club. You know, yes. where, you know, I'm, I'm going to beat you over the head with you know what should be happening in here because this is what the research shows. You know, which is you know a really unfortunate way that the research often gets used in the in the room. Indeed. Um, but kind of coming back to your story, you, um, it sounds like you're having this experience at Reed College. You're um, both in school learning clinically and research-based information about these different things, but you're also having real-world experience with people in extreme states, both just in their lives as well as over the phone. And it seems like all of those different kinds of things are impacting you and shaping you. One of the things I also know about you or have learned is um, how important the men's movement was to you and getting involved in the Mankind Project. So I'm just curious, when when does that start to come in and how does that influence you clinically? Sure, yeah. it's. Um, I wound up getting involved with the Mankind Project you know, for several years back around 2000s when it started because uh, I had a couple of friends actually who I went to college with and uh, you know, who were sort of spread out you know, different, different cities. And, and they had both done this, this men's weekend experience and, and were talking to me about it just completely independent of each other. They were not talking with each other about it. It's just so happened that they both did it around the same time, these t- two different locations. And, and, you know, I'd done a lot of therapy, you know, personal therapy by this point. And, you know, I, I always liked trying new experiences and, and going a little deeper to understand myself. And, and it sounded extremely intense and really different and like a, like a large group uh, process, like a large group experience. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I had some real, uh, I'm a pretty skeptical person. I, I have authority issues. You know, I, I, I tend to, when I hear about things like that, uh, to, to dig around a lot and, and ask a lot of questions because I, I you know, I just tend to not buy into stuff like that too easily. But they were, you know, in, in encouraging me to learn about it, and and we we're having conversations about it. And so I decided, you know, I, was, I, I at this point I was um, getting close to getting married and thinking more about uh, the future, having children. What kind of father was I going to be? What was going to bring into my uh, role as a dad from what my childhood had been? And I, I was starting to imagine that this might be a place to dig around in that part of me to explore what work I still had left to do around uh, intimacy, uh, parenting, uh, and, and, and what it means to be a father for sure. And so that's how I wound up uh, signing up for this weekend in, in 2000. And my experience, it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of different therapists over the years, you know, men who've, who are either psychologists uh, or other types of therapists who've done this 
Mankind Project stuff. And, and basically, for those who aren't familiar with it, there's sort of two main components. There's this weekend retreat kind of experience that people do. And then there are these ongoing men's groups that are sort of self-run uh, and free. And, you know, the whole thing is a nonprofit uh, kind of entity. And so, so sometimes men will do this weekend retreat just so they can get into one of these men's groups. Um, and so that wasn't me. I actually wanted to do this crazy weekend that I didn't really know much about. Uh, and then I would, you know, see, see from there what I thought of it. So, so the, 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 the sense I've gotten over the years from talking to therapists about this is there's, there's a lot of difficulty about how to make sense of what this kind of work is and whether it's safe to incorporate it in some way into our therapy as clinicians, you know, to bring it into the office somehow, whether it's appropriate ever to uh, recommend it to clients, whether if we staff one of these weekends, if we're part of the staff, what role should we have given that we have this professional background? So there's tremendous amounts of controversy and discussion that, that, that I saw happen over the years about what became very difficult topics because the weekend experience and the ongoing groups are very, very, very intense. And really the kind of stuff that a lot of therapists would say, there's no way I would do that in a therapy office. They, 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 it's too... Uh, risky, it's too intense, it requires too many facilitators. So one facilitator, one therapist running a process like this is too risky because on these, these weekend experiences, and even in the men's groups uh, in the beginning, there's often multiple facilitators helping and creating a kind of safe container. So it's a very unique kind of experiential work. I think it's a kind of therapy. They, the organization certainly would not say that, wouldn't call it therapy, but it has a lot of therapeutic elements to it, I think. And um, although the, the, the leadership is not made up of trained therapists. And so, so personally, I found the whole thing really useful, uh, very, very intense and rich uh, and for me emotionally, very meaningful for me. And, um, and, and at the end of it, I felt like, okay, I want to do this men, ongoing men's group. And I wound up in this men's group afterwards for about seven years. No kidding. Wow. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, peer, peer run, you know, by just men who had done this kind of work before and, and very meaningful work. We, you know, a lot of stuff that's gestalt based or psychodrama, you know, a lot of different sorts of uh, methods and, and exercises that are designed to uh, stir up different sorts of, uh, you know, deep experiences and emotions and, and that sort of thing. Well, and would you be willing to kind of paint a picture for listeners that may not be familiar with the Mankind Project or what happens on one of these weekends? You, you mentioned it's so intense and it's very experiential. Could you paint a picture of what some of the exercises may be or how group is leveraged and what facilitation in that kind of context looks like? So uh, I, I think what the best I could describe it is that, uh, and this is going back to when I, I did this, this is, you know, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, but I think it's probably very similar now. And that is that, you know, there's maybe somewhere between 20 and 30 men uh, who go up to, to, to this weekend. And, and there have been urban versions of this done in New York City. They're, 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 they do this all over, the, all over the world. And so different settings have different sorts of trappings to them. So, so in Colorado, it's up in the mountains, right? So one way of thinking about it is this is a, a group of you know, about 30 guys who are all carpooling to get up to the site on the mountain, don't know each other, you know, just collectively drive up in their vehicles to get to the site. And uh, you get to the site on, on Friday evening, 
and uh, very, very quickly, within a few seconds, uh, you realize this is gonna be an extremely serious thing where you, you don't know how many, but there's clearly a very large number of staff who are waiting to facilitate some sort of weekend process. And so it's, again, not like a, um, a seminar or, or, or lectures or workshops. It's, it's a completely immersive process where something very different is happening here. Um, and it's meant to be very theatrical in some ways. It's meant to be like very somewhat otherworldly in terms of the way people are acting and, and the, the way people are, are being carried through this sort of uh, series of exercises. And, and, and again, for, for the professional listeners here, it's, it's really a lot of different psychodrama and gestalt kinds of exercises around visualizations and uh, activities that are meant to uh, leverage the fact that it's a group and the fact that there are so many people all focused on the same person at once, let's say, who's speaking, to, to create a kind of social pressure to open up. So, so hopefully a benign social pressure, but a pressure that makes it safer to be more emotionally vulnerable. And so this whole, this whole situation becomes a kind of holding environment where people are really encouraged to take risks and to um, go more deeply into their process and to share that with other people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so some of the, you know, just to give the, the other side of, you know, so some ways it can be very positive and very liberating for men to, to feel like, wow, there is a container for me to express an extremely powerful set of feelings that I've never felt safe, even, even bringing up to the surface before, and that I could never do, let's say, with a therapist. But if there are 30, 40, 50, 60 men all here in support of me, something very different can happen than with an individual therapist and even a you know, group therapy. So it's, it's a very unique kind of circumstance. But having said that, the flip side is, and some of the misgivings sometimes among men who, who have therapy training, who, who have staffed these weekends or gone through the weekend, is you know, the, the men leading these processes, although the leaders you know, have some sort of training, it's not necessarily trauma-informed or deep or lengthy clinical training. And the worry uh, is that there are certainly a lot of men who do these weekends with really clear trauma histories. You know, they've been through uh, wars, they've been imprisoned, they've been uh, abused in various ways as children. And sometimes stuff can crack open that is so powerful. And I've seen it handled very, very well. But the concern is once the stuff cracks open, what happens when they leave the weekend? What's the follow-up? How safe are they? You know, is there going to be, you know, some sort of way for them to keep, you know, getting support around this? And there's certainly because it's not therapy and it's not, there's no uh, system, you know, systematic way of making sure people are doing therapy if something like this happens. There's some real risk there, I think. Now, having said that, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just add one more thing. The, the, the organization has had a bunch of spinoff organizations. There's one for, for gay men, specifically to have a safe space as a gay man. There's one, there's, there's a version in prisons that are done for prisoners. There's a version for black men. There's a version for uh, Vietnam vets. I, I imagine it's been extended now to veterans of other wars, but in the beginning it was specifically for men who'd, who'd gone through Vietnam. So they have all these different ways of trying to create these sub-containers for, for different specialties or, or different um, kinds of safety for men to do their work. So I imagine, you know, for men who are in prison or men who 
gone to war, you know, there's enough safety in the process that they can, uh, you know, deal with some of that trauma. But, but having said that, it's, you know, it, it gives me some pause. Well, it sounds like uh, the kind of setting where some very powerful and visceral uh, experiences could happen, could, uh, could unfold. It's also reminded me of a conversation I just recently had with a therapist friend of mine that I think went to a very similar kind of experiential based weekend, not this um, one in particular, but another kind. And this is a therapist that's very trauma informed and has done a lot of work on um, his own experiences of trauma. Um, but felt a lot of concern in the midst of some of these very experiential uh, psychodrama kind of exercises for people that might be going into their trauma actually for the first time. Yes. And having very powerful, evocative experiences, getting very, very stimulated, um, and then really being concerned what happens now after the weekend finishes. Um, how does this, how do, how do these kind of people? Um, have ongoing containers in order to continue to digest, metabolize the experience versus being in a position where uh, they have opened themselves up so dramatically and now they're just kind of going back into the world without necessarily a, a, another holding environment to, to support them and continuing to integrate what happened. Right. And, 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 and what you're saying really also makes me think about you know, some of the ways we think about ethics in our field, which is you know, you know, maybe 90 or 95% of the time it goes beautifully. You know, it's, it's healing, it's positive, it's safe, it's wonderful. What the ethics codes are written for is that five to 10% of the time that something horrible happens. So it's like, well, sh I've worked with a couple in couples therapy and one of the people in the couple wants to now come back and see me individually. Is that okay? And so, you know, people can think and, you know, the therapist might think, of all the different ways it could be completely sensible and make, you know, be fantastic to work with them individually. And what could go wrong? And the thing is, most of the time they'd be right, probably. But then there is that portion that could go horribly wrong by crossing a certain boundary or a certain set of expectations around confidentiality. Oh, I thought this was confidential because it's private, you know, it's individual now. And oh, wait, what do you mean you're going to talk to my wife about some of these things? So, so all these ethical codes are not all, but, but a lot of them are written for the minority, the small minority of, but, but potentially very, very traumatic or, or, or just terrible uh, ways that therapy can go off track. So that's what I think about in this kind of thing. It's like, yeah, the, the process may be fantastic for the vast majority, but what happens for that small minority where it could be going horribly wrong? Right. Some of the unforeseen consequences that can unfold. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned that this could also, or infrequently does for some people, lead into an ongoing group experience that is led by peers. So um, w one of the other pieces that I think comes up quite a lot is the difference of leader groups and leaderless groups. And even when there's a rotating leadership uh, with peers, for example, and I'm just curious, any reflections that you've, you have based on having been in that experience, I think you said you were in that kind of group experience for seven years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And any, any thoughts in terms of how you see either rotating leadership or lack of leadership affecting the group process? Yeah, I, I think that like group therapy, uh, a men's group like this can be really affected by the unique makeup of the members, right? So different men's groups are going to have a different personality to them, just like different therapy groups do. But the, the, in the Mankind Project in particular, they, the, each men's group, and, and, and I think this process has evolved over the years, but, but basically men who finish that weekend experience and, and begin the 
sort of ongoing group process, go through a kind of training about how to run a men's group, how to, you know, what are different stories and processes and different ways of, 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 of organizing and ritualizing the group process. So it is a kind of ritualized process that has a particular order to how, how one does things. Uh, and the ritual is meant to evoke and create more of that sense of safety or brotherhood and, and there's this familiarity and maybe like an AA group where you can yeah. go to an AA group anywhere in the world and you're going to see a lot of the same elements and the same kinds of uh, language and, and that can create a kind of sense of safety and belonging. And it's the same kind of idea. So, so that is part of what creates the ongoing container is this ritual of how we begin by checking in in a certain way and we do a kind of work and then we check out a certain way, that sort of thing. And then, and then teaching some of these exercises, which again are somewhat therapy-like in nature, and, and whether it's uh, inner dialogue kinds of coaching or, or these gestalt exercises and things like that. Yes. So once the men go through this initial training over a period of maybe 12 or 15 weeks, then they are sort of set free to either continue as a group or maybe they scatter into joining other already ongoing groups to, to, to do that. And then, and, and then the individual groups can, the, the culture can evolve and it can become more social and, and, uh, or they might have a service project that they all do together because they're getting kind of bored of examining their wounds. So it's like, okay, now what are we going to do? Because uh, <laughs> we've, we've supported each other through all sorts of stuff over the years, but it's getting kind of dry. It's getting kind of boring and we don't want to just be about like complaining or, it's not always about it's not always about us. So maybe we want to do something of service to, for the community or something like that, or we'll start doing a wine tasting thing once a month or something. So so you know the so that's the beauty of the self-run group is that group can kind of keep evolving in in a way that serves the members. There is this sort of uh, uh, common wisdom uh, and set of skills that that they can draw from to run the group. Sometimes they have visitors come in to teach them new processes or new skills uh, if things are getting a little stale. Uh, so they can use more experienced men in the community to, to, to feed off of and, and give them more of what they may be needing to, to, to gel more as a group or get more out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that it really becomes kind of an, an evolving situation where um, people don't just necessarily stay in group together as much as they then kind of bring the group experience into their life in a variety of different ways from informally just being friends to actually even being on a project together in a, in a way. Yeah, it can. Yeah. It can evolve yeah. that way. I mean, often it's, you know, it is very social and, and, and it, it is, you know, the, the men are, do become very close and, and good friends with each other. And in that way also it's very different than group therapy because the boundaries are much more diffuse and, and, and not hierarchical. Yeah. Well, considering that it has been such an intense experience, I'm wondering how has it influenced you at all as a clinician? So, uh, you know, one thing I'll mention is that, you know, once in a, once in a blue moon, the question will come up uh, when I'm with a client, whether they might potentially uh, benefit from something like this. And it's a very difficult situation for me as a therapist, because I never, ever, 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 ever recommend it. Um, I sometimes will bring it up as a potential resource that they could go research themselves and but i'm very clear that i am not recommending it and i'm also not playing like word games about it like wink wink nudge nudge i'm not recommending it i'm seriously not recommending it and, and i tell them the reason i'm not recommending it is because the nature of the of the work 
is, and again, this is something else that the organization itself has struggled with and, and debated about, whether this is the right way to keep going or whether they need to change something about this. But it has an initiatory kind of framework to it. So, and part of that, again, is to, is to leverage the theater of it so that men are surprised by certain experiences and they don't know what's coming and that's supposed to really accentuate the experience. So the problem is when you create that kind of mystery, you can't give informed consent. And so it's a really double-edged sword. So I tell people, I can't recommend this because if you knew what was going to happen on this weekend, it is highly likely that there is no way you'd do it. And, and I'm saying that with all seriousness. So it's, so I'm not recommending this because literally if you knew what to expect, you would likely say no, um, because it is really extreme. It's really different and, um, and very challenging, um, emotionally, psychologically, and maybe to a degree physically, although they make, you know, uh, certainly make arrangements for people with disabilities and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, Same. so, so that's one thing is that it does come up, you know, from, from, you know, on, on occasion, not, not frequently, but on occasion, like, Hmm, might this person potentially want to look into this? And I can't judge um, whether it will have a positive impact. I, I certainly wouldn't even think of it or bring it up if I thought that the chances were they would have a negative impact on the person, but, but I cannot at all uh, ensure their sense of psychological safety uh, on, on this weekend. And that's part of it. It's, it's you know, the initiation of men. So there's supposed to be this element of danger and not all men are going to come back alive. You know? And it has that kind of quality of uh, this is how initiation has been done for thousands of years. You know, it wasn't safe and not all did come back alive. And that's sort of, you know, kind of used, you know, in, in to, to create more of that kind of uh, tension in the air. So, sure. so that's one piece. And then another piece is in some ways, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I really enjoyed and got a lot out of some of the psychodrama kinds of, uh, of work that they do there. And I, I've had other kinds of experiences of doing uh, more experiential exercises in group settings, and, and they can be very, very powerful. And, and so it, it, they really do have a really rich collection of these stories and exercises and, and processes that even if I don't use them directly in my clinical practice, um, they, for instance, made me more oriented that and actually also uh, uh, work I've done in working with teenage boys in, in a mentoring program um, it made me much more interested in storytelling as a healing process. Um, and there are some really amazing stories and fairy tales that, that really can impact people really deeply when they hear them and, and really cause them to resonate and see themselves and their struggles in a way that is heroic and healing so that's that that was an influence as well i think absolutely what's coming to mind is also just the inherent power of um within the group therapy context hearing other people tell their stories and the amount of work that gets generated and done for a person just even listening to that let alone being in the position of actually telling the emotionally significant story of their life absolutely yeah yeah well, I'd love to switch gears a little bit and to talk uh, about your uh, research and the way that you've developed, I think, your own instrument, the Feedback Informed Treatment Fit. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And um, would love to hear you talk about what it is and how you see uh, incorporating research and ongoing feedback as uh, supportive to the group process and how you in incorporate the data in your thinking as the group leader. Sure. 
So remember that, that I got into this whole field uh, partly through really, really bad therapy experiences. And part of my mission as a therapist is to give people the opposite of that. To, people never leave a session or certainly a course of therapy feeling like that guy does not know what he's doing. I could do a better job than that guy. I don't want people to feel like I felt as a kid. And, you know, and I, and I mentioned that I've got issues with authority and I have issues with people using research in ways to hit their clients uh, or each other over the head to prove a point. And so a lot of skepticism about authority and using things to leverage authority. And so the same thing is true for research. You know, I, I uh, originally thought I would be more interested in, in, in psychopharmacology. And as I was really getting an education in the, in the deeper research uh, on psychopharmacology, I was seeing how much BS there was in terms of what the actual research findings were and then how those findings got translated into you know, popular press, you know, like Time Magazine or something like that, you know, where, where people were getting an impression about the effectiveness of these drugs, which was not borne out by the actual research that the articles were supposed to be based on. And as time went on, I did some research at the National Institute of Mental Health before graduate school, and I got to see firsthand that there was some really, really interesting research happening, but also some really questionable methodology that could really steer the results in the direction the researchers wanted the results to go. So I was learning a lot about how statistics could be abused and methodologies could be abused in order to generate the outcomes one wanted. So that fed, again, the skepticism. As I'm finishing graduate school, I come across these guys, these, these three men who are all working together, uh, developing what is now called FIT and uh, feedback-informed treatment. And they were skeptics too. They had a whole thing about authority too. They basically were, were tired of therapists uh, who were resting on their own laurels or on the fact that they were doing research-based work or evidence-based therapy or that sort of thing, and not really being accountable to their clients for their actual outcomes. And so they were really interested in generating much more person-to-person -person accountability in the session between the therapist and the client, and not assuming that because people were using the state-of-the-art therapy of the day, that they were actually doing anything useful in the room with the client. And that's often how empirically supported treatments are used. Let's see, I'm doing empirically supported treatment. Meanwhile, your outcomes might be terrible locally, you know, in, in your own office. So I really liked this idea. Um, and so, so just the concept or the philosophy of it intrigued me, having more accountability to the client. But I was really skeptical of their method too. You know, I didn't know whether something really simplistic, like asking a few questions about well-being, was really gonna tell people or, or tell a, a therapist how a client was really feeling. You know, what if they're unconsciously anxious and consciously they're, you know, pulling themselves together? What are they going to say on this form? So how accurate can all this stuff really be? So I debated and I read and I argued uh, and I read some more and went to workshops and conferences for about four years actively until I finally was convinced to try it and see what would happen in my office. And I tried it with some clients who I'd been working with for some time already. So I thought they would be pretty safe and tolerant if I did this thing that they felt was really stupid or intrusive. So I introduced what I was doing and said, you know, would you be willing to fill out these questions about how you've been doing the last week and also how the session's been going today? Because uh, I want to see if I can learn something from you about what might be better than what we're doing. You know, just try to introduce it however I did. 
And I found within about a week that I was starting to get on rare occasions, maybe once or twice a week, something really surprising would happen. And I'd get a piece of feedback that I was not expecting at all, that the, the nonverbals, the, the verbal communication was telling me one thing, and on this silly little paper form, they would say something completely different. And I'd ask them about, so wait, help me understand, because, you know, for instance, you, you, you were talking about how incredibly lonely you're feeling right now, or, or depressed. And on this form about your well-being, it says things are going great. Like on a scale of zero to 10, you're like a nine. So how does that go with all this other stuff you're talking about in the session about how desperately alone you are? And then that would open up a whole conversation about the false self, you know, or the masks that they are so used to wearing that even on this form, they would answer inauthentically. But then we got to talk about how it's showing up socially. So there's all these different really cool conversations that were coming out. Uh, in all sorts of ways uh, from the form. So that's how I got started. Um, and, and then through that, I, I also wanted uh, training other clinicians and doing some research and, and that sort of thing. Oh, wonderful. You know, it's so interesting because um, what I'm wondering about is then how you take these forms that people are writing individually and then you kind of reincorporate that information in the group therapy session. So are members aware that how they fill out the form could be used or will be used actively by you in the group therapy session to disclose and to share and to ask questions about their involvement? Yeah. So in group therapy, uh, we use them in a very particular way. And that is that in the beginning of the session, they fill out the ROSE form, which is three questions about their well-being in the past week. And those answers are not shared with the rest of the group. They just do that privately. And I keep track of that. And they're aware of why, you know, and how I use that to, to, to check in and, and see if things are getting better. And if not, maybe something needs to change about the therapy. And that's used more actively in individual therapy where I can very specifically point to, hey, you know, We've been working together for quite some time. It looks like things are getting worse as we're going along here. You know, what, what you, is there something you want to tell me about that? So, I, so in group therapy, I'm not going to bring that up in the group context. I might do that offline with somebody if I'm particularly concerned about something. But I'm just tracking, again, for, for general accountability about whether the group is effective. Um, and then, so they do that at the beginning of the group. At the end of the group, about 10 minutes before the group finishes, we pass around the group SES, the Session Experience Scale. So the ROSE stands for Rating of Outcome Scale, and the SES is the Session Experience Scale. So we have a group version of that that has specifically group-oriented questions for group process. And so there are questions about whether people are feeling heard and understood by the leader and the other group members, a question about cohesion, you know, whether people are feeling like the group is working well together, even if sometimes they don't get along or there's arguing and that sort of thing. So there's three questions about that. So, so everyone answers that, those questions. And then I ask them to go around and just give me their scores for the three questions. And the score can be zero through 10. So the first person will say, you know, eight, eight, nine. And the next person will say nine, five, seven. And we'll just go around and just do the numbers. And what the group will then do is they will typically orient to the person who had a low score on something. They had a five. That's a low score for, for the alliance and among the group members. And so people will say, hey, you know, Fred, you know, what's, what was that five about? So it gives people an opportunity to check in about something that they might have otherwise left the room holding in a way that could be uh, 
weakening their sense of, of cohesion with the group or might make them feel like they're, they're not really being heard. So it gives a, an opportunity to, to have a little closure, at least to touch on something that a person would have otherwise kept to themselves, maybe not shown up for the next session um, because they were feeling uh, disappointed or, or, or really bad about something. And so the group gets to talk about that for a few minutes, just to, just to touch on uh, what might come up around those themes. And then, um, and then we leave it to the next session. And then in the next session, once they do the ROSE form, the, the well-being form, I show them a graph of each person and how they're experiencing the group alliance, the group cohesion. So it's a graph, an ongoing graph over months of how has the group been working together. And individually, if someone is plummeting from, you know, in a certain session, and that's a nice reminder of, hey, whoa, last time this person went completely off the rails in terms of how they were experiencing the session. Should we follow up? Hey, are you okay, Fred? What happened? You know, you know, what was that like after the session ended? So it's, it, it helps the group stay together and not, not drop anyone if, if someone's having a really bad experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really hearing how the feedback can be used very proactively and almost protectively to help um, prompt members or even cue members to talk about some of their dissatisfactions. It's almost built into the frame or the structure that that's going to happen almost on a session by session basis. It, it is session by session. Yes. They, they, they get prompted. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious um, because being aware of some other frames that do not have that um, as a part of their um, expectations for the group, there's a, a, an idea therapeutically that actually um, from session to session, a person may be generating a kind of tension internally by not speaking up, by not talking. Of course, the risk is that they may not come back, but if there's enough of a relationship established with the group, with the other members or with the leader, that the, the relational traction will continue to uh, pull them into the group, but that some of their frustrations um, would be developing attention over time that would prompt them to uh, talk about it or the, the, the uh, leader might use their counter-transference feelings or some other way of both building tension and then resolving tension over a longer time frame. Curious, any thoughts that you have about differences between those kinds of approaches? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and, and, you know, one of the, one of the ways in which these types of measures are kept from being silly is that they're really just supposed to inform a conversation. So I never use the data from these forms uh, to, to make snap judgments about what's going on. It's just supposed to be part of the rest of the data, you know, of, you know, how people are showing up and what they're saying or not saying and that sort of thing. So it might be the case that a person is feeling uh, disconnected from the rest of the group, but they keep giving tens. Everything's perfect. And just as in individual or couples work, I might be prompted to say at some point after some time has gone by, you know, I'm curious about something. You know, on the, on the group session scale, you, it, look, it sounds like things are perfect every time. And I'm really wondering if that's how you feel. So, so yeah, it doesn't rely on the person freely coming to a place on their own time uh, and coming to their own awareness on their own time. It's a more, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a more careful or, or fear-based way of doing therapy where it's like, I don't trust the process. I want to actually make sure I'm checking in because I don't want to lose the person 
I want to give them more opportunities to be heard. And, and early on in the research of using these tools you know, around the world, what clinicians were finding in these different settings was it was having a massive impact on dropout rates and early termination rates. So that's you know, another way of thinking about this is it's not like this is a be all and end all of improving treatment. It's more like it can catch people from bolting uh, or dropping out because it's just one avenue to speak up when they don't feel safe to speak up in another way or, or they are trying to speak up, but the therapist is missing it. And so now you can clobber the therapist over the head by giving them a two um, and, so that, and wake them up or wake her up. So that's, that's often how it winds up getting used in the real world. Sure. Well, it makes me think about treatment resistant versus treatment destructive uh, behaviors. Yeah. And that it, it sounds like the, the fit um, using this kind of data can really help work with treatment destructive relationships or behaviors where a person uh, might be just more inclined to bolt. Absolutely. You know, I think about some of the institutes I've been at with, you know, AGPA, for example, where, or, or, or not institutes, I'm sorry, uh, in the uh, demo groups, uh, where a process is happening and the therapist running the demo group might think that, that the, uh, the discombobulation or the fracturing of the group is part of the, of the demonstration or this is natural. Meanwhile, the, 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 the quote unquote clients in this demonstration group are becoming livid, re-traumatized, disconnected, numb, and the therapist is very firmly couched in their philosophical stance of, well, this is fascinating. Look at how the group is starting to come apart at the seams. So it, instead of the, gr the, the group leader being in this position of authority where they know what they're doing, the, the, the clients can all say, hey, maybe you don't know what you're doing because we're really, really freaking out here or really unhappy here. Yeah, it gives it gives another opportunity at least for the for the therapist to wake up to that. Absolutely. Well, and and I'm I, I think I'm hearing within that a kind of critique of group approaches that might not be trauma informed, which is I know another uh, area of, of passion and concern for you. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You know, I'm aware of the time and there's still so much, Jason, I want to talk about, but um, one of the things I, I would love before we uh, have to end to touch on would be the Center for Clinical Excellence and what that is and what you've started and what's your vision for it. Yeah, thanks, Angelo. Um, so I started the, the Colorado Center for Clinical Excellence because um, I had been doing training, you know, with, with agencies and clinicians where I'd be brought in to, to teach how to do FIT and it would not get implemented. And often it was not being implemented because it was an administration who was bringing me in as a trainer to force the therapist to use this because they had to have more accountability as an agency or whatever. It was depressing to go do these trainings because I knew coming in that clinicians were really skeptical, fearful, that they were gonna get fired, uh, they were gonna have to have even more paperwork on their plates to handle when they're already overworked. So it was not a friendly experience, and, uh, and I was not brought back to do the really necessary follow-up work to make sure it got implemented in a good way. So through a lot of these sorts of experiences, I was getting really frustrated and depressed and decided I didn't want to do these trainings anymore, and, but I really believe in the process and how helpful it could be to clients, so I decided why not just train my own people? Why not have an in-house training group uh, where I can make sure that this stuff gets implemented in a good way. Um, I had already been doing some work on some of the, the statistical methodologies that needed to get cleaned up. So I thought, that ah, that's cool. I can have more data to use to, to develop some of these 
uh, um, better ways of doing the statistics. And um, so, th so that's how I started the group, is, is to have a feedback-informed practice where people can be very different in their clinical approaches, but we all share this, this same philosophy of accountability and excellence to make sure we're, we're doing good work. Mm -hmm. So actively leveraging research as a way of gathering feedback and really on a on a session by session basis, gauging where the therapy is and what kind of outcome you're you're headed towards. Yes, because as it turns out, with all the research that's been done on therapy outcomes over the last couple of decades, what keeps showing up over and over again is that all data are local, all evidence is local. So you can have you know clinicians say they're doing evidence based practice, but if they're not collecting their own evidence they aren't doing evidence-based practice because it turns out that the difference in effectiveness between clinicians is much larger than the difference between different bona fide therapies when they're compared head-to-head. -head. So people are, are thinking they're doing evidence-based practice, but they're not. They're borrowing someone else's evidence, you know, the clinicians in that study who are doing the therapy. And they're thinking, oh, then if I do the same practice, the same kind of method, I'll get those results too. And that's not how it works. That's not what the research shows. So all evidence really has to be local. It's a dangerous assumption. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so what forms of therapy do you guys offer at CCE? And if somebody in the community were interested in following up with you or finding out more about CCE, how could they do that? So uh, the, the, the best way to follow up with us is to go to our website, which is thecoloradocenter.com. And, um, and that will tell people more than what they want to know about each of us. Um, and in terms of what we do, it's really variable. Uh, uh, some of us do cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, briefer solution-focused therapy, um, psychoanalytic therapy, existential body-centered therapy, child therapy, you know, including play therapy with very young kids, couples therapy, uh, uh, DBT uh, is, is one offering, you know, different forms of group therapy for different ages. Uh, art, art therapy for, for girls. So there's a lot of different things that we're doing. And that's part of what we, we try to pride ourselves on is not getting too hung up on one method because we know that different methods work for different people. And we really want to have a nice wide offering uh, of, of the kinds of things that we can do. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. It's wonderful to hear about so many different modalities um, under one roof, but also using a feedback approach in order to find out how um, the, the work's unfolding. Yeah, it's, it's uh, our, our next challenge, our growing edge, is going to be on how the heck do we pull all these statistics together? Because some of what we're finding is that the, there's even more complications than, than the field is already aware of in terms of how these things can be reported in a good way, in a, in a conservative way. We try to be very conservative. We, we actually put our results on our website oh, great. for our individual clinicians. So we're all individually accountable. Um, and, you know, it's, so we can ask, you know, is, are all of us better than average? And we better be. Uh, and if not, we better figure out how to get there. So, so that's great. And so we've had those stats on our website for years. The problem is the more we learn about these different ways that the stats can be tinkered with, the, the more we're, we're realizing, ooh, you know, this is, it's, we've got to really figure out how to report this in a way that's really understandable and maybe even more conservative than anyone's doing. So we're kind of at the, at the front edge of how do we get the reporting of statistics about effectiveness under control? Because you can basically set it up in, in such a, a wide range of ways to show almost anything now. And we wanna be very transparent and very 
uh, you know, uh, rigorous about how we do this. We don't want to wind up embarrassed, you know, five years from now because we were saying, look how effective we are. And oops, we were using a method for showing effectiveness that actually made it really easy to look effective. So mm -hmm. that's a lot of the research we're doing right now. Such that there would actually be some transparency or some real coherence behind what those numbers are and what they actually mean. Yes. Yeah. So we we go we discuss in horrible detail on the website how we do it, and, and we're certainly welcome. You know, we welcome conversations to describe in even in more depth how we do our analysis because we want people to to be able to argue about the stuff and use it and and keep developing it and making it better. But we're in the midst right now of really doing our next phase of how do we report this in a good way. Uh, we keep going through a, an evolution with it. Well, very, very rich, Jason. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It has been an incredible honor to interview you and uh, so much rich material here for us to hopefully continue to talk about. Well, thanks a lot, Angela. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care.